Okay, everybody, welcome. Welcome to those of you who are uh, Zooming your way in. Uh, as ever, feel free to send your questions, comments, anything you'd like to do to participate in this evening's uh, Bible study. I know it's not the same being all that distance away and viewing it on a little screen, but um, hopefully we can make it uh, as uh, fruitful as possible for you. And those of you who are here, welcome. I notice it's interesting... Um, I, I'm tempted to draw some deep pastoral and psychological conclusions from the fact that there's a slightly different crowd here for Ecclesiastes than there was for Ephesians. So maybe the people who are here for Ephesians like the idea that God has a plan and he's disclosed it to us, uh, or the, whereas the people who are here for Ecclesiastes uh, are trying to deal with the fact that he's not disclosed all of the details and, and sometimes life feels a little bit more confusing. Um, but anyway, I, actually, there are some people who are here for both, and um, maybe it's just more to do with the fact that all, all, all you new folks joining the church, on which note, warm welcome to, to you guys particularly. Um, we're going to uh, jump back into the book of Ecclesiastes. I'm going to read uh, from chapter one again. I, I think what we'll do is, because we got through a, a mammoth two verses last week, and we actually, <laughs> I know this sounds terrible, but we actually didn't get through two verses, because I want to go back to verse two and show you something else that's uh, from there. This doesn't break the record, by the way, in my experience. When I was at seminary, I I had once three hours on Nahum chapter 1, verse 1. Nahum, the book of Nahum, from uh, uh, Professor Thomas Rentz, who's a very, very fine Old Testament scholar. Um, If you've ever read Old Testament commentaries, you will know um, Gordon Wenham, wrote commentaries on Genesis and Leviticus and a bunch of other books well. Gordon Wenham was once invited to a guest to do a guest lecture at the seminary that I had the privilege of studying at Oak Hill uh, Seminary, and he said his opening remarks were, "Well, I don't know why you've bothered to get me all the way out here. You've got Thomas Rents on your faculty, one of the finest Old Testament scholars in the world. I don't really think I've got anything to add." And, that, and we all thought, <laughs> "Wow, <laughs> we, we knew he was good, and now we know how good he is." Anyway, so. Um, uh, I'm not planning to spend three hours on one verse, don't worry. Uh, only Dr. Rents could do that. But there's still a bit more on verse two. So we're going to read. I hope we'll get through the whole of chapter one <laughs> today. Whatever. Maybe we will. Who knows? And then we'll pray. Uh, and then we'll just uh, jump into it. So Ecclesiastes chapter one, verse one. The words of the preacher, the words of Kohelet, the one who gathers the assembly, the son of David, king in Jerusalem, hevel of hevels, Vanity of vanities, mist of mists, says Kohelet, the preacher. Mist of mists, everything is mist, fog, uh, wind, breath. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? The generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes round to the north, round and round goes the wind, and on its circuit, or literally round, the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? 
It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. I, the preacher, I, Kohelet, the one who gathers the assembly, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. And I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under the sun. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I've seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight. What is lacking cannot be counted. I said in my heart, I have acquired great wisdom, surpassing all who were over Jerusalem before me, and my heart has had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. And I applied my heart to know wisdom and to know madness and folly. I perceive that this also is but a striving after wind, for in much wisdom is much vexation. And he who increases knowledge increases sorrow. Let's pray, shall we? Merciful Father, open our eyes that we may see wonderful things in your law, your word. And even as we wrestle with this perplexing and confusing and at times perhaps even frustrating and bewildering book, we ask that you would shine those glimmers of light that will cause us to be able to see with greater clarity how we ought to live and why we ought to rejoice and uh, how we should approach, how we should handle the realities of the uh, experience of life that you set before us. Please bless us richly as we do this. Help us to help one another. We're gathered for that purpose. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so it's just a quick recap. Uh, and just even in the reading, I was just reminding those of you who were here uh, last week some of the details that we, we looked at. Um, these are the words of uh, a man who describes himself as Kohelet, uh, which is translated often the preacher, but you know that it, it comes from the verb kahal, which means to gather or to assemble people. So he's the one who gathers the assembly, and it's interesting that he describes himself in that way. It suggests lots of different things, and we ex- explored some of these together. For example, it suggests that um, only by getting together are you going to be able to figure out what life is about. Actually, there are explicit texts to that end in, uh, in the book of Ecclesiastes. It calls to mind the other time when Solomon kahaled something, Anybody remember, when, when did Solomon ever gather an assembly? Who remembers that? First Kings 8, yeah, very good. Yeah, the, um, the assembly to pray at the dedication of the temple. And so what's, the, what's Ecclesiastes got to do with the temple? It's not really about cultic worship, is it? So maybe it is reflecting on the gathering for worship at the temple the kahal, the assembly of the people of God, and explaining, well, this is what you're going to find when you leave the temple doors. This is what temple worship prepares you for the complexity of life. Um, Perhaps it also um, picks up the other people who were gathered to Solomon later in his his life, 1 Kings 10. Who came to Solomon in 1 Kings 10? Did we mention this? Yeah, we did mention this. I'm sure we did. Who came to see Solomon? Very famous woman. Queen Queen of Sheba, yes. Well done. Very good. All half a dozen voices shouted out, um, Queen of Sheba. So maybe, actually, this is a wisdom for the world. 
the people gather to God's anointed king and come with all their confusion. And they come, quote, to test him with hard questions. Remember, that's what the Queen of Sheba does in 1 Kings 10. And they're amazed at the wisdom of the greater Solomon. So there's, there's gospel here in the sense that there is a proclamation of the wisdom that Christ, the greater wise ruler king, will bring to the world. Interestingly, um, the covenant name of God is not used in this book. I think that's right. I can't, I can't think of an instance when it is. Um, instead, God refers to himself, or God is referred to, um, using the more generic title, God, rather than Yahweh, the covenant Lord. He's the God of all the nations. It's not that he's not in covenant with Israel, and not that Israel doesn't matter, but it's that it's emphasizing God's rule over all the world. And of course, it does. The, the fact that it's talking about Solomon ruling, well, Solomon is fulfilling partially and badly Adam's failed uh, vocation as the ruler, the one who's given rule. And we're going to see some creation echoes here um, in the rest of this chapter. And then, of course, remember, we, we just asked ourselves the more basic question, well, why doesn't he tell us his name? Um, and I suggested, and we had a number of different uh, proposals. Um, one suggestion I think that is worth reflecting on is that um, the, the veiled character of the author reflects and embodies the veiled meaning of that which he speaks of. He's like a mystery voice speaking about mysterious and perplexing things. Then um, Hevel of Hevels, Vanity of Vanities. Um, Some of you have helpful footnotes in your Bible which say things like vapour. Meaningless is not a good translation because the point is not that life is without meaning or or even that it's vain, it's not that life is pointless, it's that life is like mist, life is like breath. Remember the illustration of a lake? And it doesn't happen as often in Texas as it does on the damp island in the North Sea where my family and I come from, but you quite often get mist early in the morning, and it's beautiful kind of, uh, almost shimmering, blowing this way and that, and you can't capture it, and, and you, you can stand looking at it, and it's just wonderful and beautiful, and it's like the sun rising and then as the, the temperature just raises a degree or two over the surface of the misty lake, it all just evaporates or blows away. And you think, oh, wow, that's, you're never going to see that again. That's gone forever. And it was wonderful while it lasted, and it's gone forever. Um, and so the overall message, then, we could encapsulate, in as much as we could encapsulate it, is not that um, life is pointless. It's that life has its frustrations and its perplexities and its temporary and it is hard to pin down. And, and the great moments ought to be captured and enjoyed, but you can't capture them. You can enjoy them, but you can't bottle them. Sometimes you have moments that you just wish could last forever, and they can't last forever. And it's, we're transitory in that way. Uh, one book um, was recommended to me by um, a member of the congregation here. She'd been reading it. Uh, it's a book by... Uh, Actually, a a gentleman I've met, uh, David Gibson, Um, he's a pastor in Scotland. And um, he gives an illustration, which I was really encouraged by this because I'd given the same illustration. I'm like, yes. In a a recent book, published in 2020, or when I preached on Ecclesiastes years and years ago, um, I recalled um, one of my favorite photographs of my children. And he tells a similar story. Um, the, The story I told back in 2013 or whenever it was, was um, 
we were on our way back from France. We'd been on vacation and we'd driving up through France. We got to Calais, which is the closest bit of France, roughly, to, to England, about 20 miles across the English Channel. Now, they call it the Channel, but it's the English Channel. <laughs> anyway, um, uh, the, um, there's this big beach, big, wide, sandy beach in, in Calais. And, so, and the tidal range in the English Channel is really quite wide. It's, a, it's several feet, maybe several meters in some parts. And, and so you can build beautiful sandcastles on the damp sand when the tide is out. And I've got this picture of the kids covered in sand. They're, they're quite small, you know, sort of 16. <laughs> They've got like four or five and seven or something. And they're covered in sand and it's all in their hair and it's all in, I don't know, all over the place. And their clothes and and they've, they've built these sandcastles, and they've got these massive smiles on their face, and they've got this big, beautiful sandcastle that they're, that they're, that's there, and it's going to last about three hours because the tide will come in, and it'll wash it all away. And they're so happy, and it's all going to be just washed away. It's the, the beautiful transientness of life. And Ecclesiastes is really wrestling with that, um, and so there are times at which there's a focus on the, the beauty, the wonder. Enjoy life with your wife all the days of this vain life. And there are times when there is the focus on the, the injustice and the bitterness, of, often of death. Death is a big theme in Ecclesiastes. Um, and it's to that I want to turn as we take our faltering next step forward into verse 2. Are you, are you impressed how fast we're moving? Um, got, like, this is pop quiz time. Now, if I've talked to you about this before, please don't shout out, but some of you might may be able to work it out. Um, the word hevel sounds a little bit like somebody's name. A very famous character in scripture um, now forget about the H because the English transliteration doesn't have the H no not Eve the clue is that the, the V in the English Hevel is actually a Hebrew B it just doesn't have a dot in it. If it has a dot in it called a dagesh, then it's pronounced a b. But linguists will know that b and v are actually quite closely related sounds. And, and in, in Hebrew, they, they use the same letter. The b has a dot. The v does not have a dot. So ignore the h, turn the v into a b. What have you got? Abel. The consonants of hevel are the same as the consonants in Genesis 4, Abel. And in fact, some, some vowel, Hebrew vowels change depending on what kind of part of speech you're looking at. Is it a noun? Is it a participle? Is it a verb? What, what case and number the verb is and so on. But some uh, vowels that you would add to Hevel are exactly the same as the name of Abel. So check this out. Verse 2. Abel of Abel's, says Kohelet. 
Abel of Abel's. Everything is Abel. What does Adam gain? The word for man is Adam. Somebody tell me what that evokes. Verse 2 and 3. Everything is Abel. What does Adam gain? What story does that evoke from Scripture? Very good. D- turn back with me to, where are we turning back to, somebody? Genesis 4. Genesis 4. Turn back to Genesis 4. I, I warned you, I think I warned you, I hope I warned you, that this is a bitter and sobering and brutally honest book that, that it doesn't just confront the strongest emotions in us, it actually provokes them. It, it forces out of us the most honest and sober-minded grappling with the realities of life's pain. And so, you know, the narrative of Genesis 4, um, uh, Genesis 4, 1, Adam knew his wife Eve and she conceived and bore Cain, saying, I've produced a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his, bore his brother, Hevel. Now, Hevel was a keeper of sheep and Cain a worker of the ground. And you know the story, um, in the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. Abel also brought of the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And there's, there's an apparent contrast here. There's something about Hevel's offering which is pleasing to God. Because end of verse 4, the Lord had regard for Hevel and his offering, but for Cain and his offering he had no regard. And it's, it's possible that it was the attitude of the hearts of the two brothers, or it's possible there was something else going on. Um, we can leave that aside. But Cain's very angry, and the Lord said to Cain, what are you so angry about? If you did well, wouldn't you be accepted? Verse 7. If you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Now, that's fascinating, because remember all of, the, all of the emphases we've looked at so far about ruling in Ecclesiastes. So keep that thought in your mind. Ruling. Cain spoke to Abel, Hevel, his brother, and when they're in the field, he rose up against his brother, Hevel, and killed him. Now, let's just pause there a second before we get to his name being cried out from the ground. What does Adam gain? Because everything is Abel. What's the... What's a way of paraphrasing that those two clips from Ecclesiastes 1, 2, and 3. That microphone slightly. Is that okay? It's fine. Great. Thanks very much, Uriah. Um, what, you've got... Abel has just been murdered by his brother. What's, what's Adam going to feel? Grief. Grief. But, but more than grief... Confusion, like this is not. I mean, <laughs> there is in Scripture a picture of an old man dying, full of years, and being buried in the heritage of his fathers at a ripe old age. And nobody likes to see the death of a, a man or a woman at such a, at any stage of their life. But if 
if you're going to if you're going to pass which you are wouldn't you like that wouldn't you like to be gathered to your people buried in your land your life celebrated at the end of many days and you've seen your children's children children's children's children wouldn't that be wonderful how's how's adam feeling yeah, it's the first, first two humans that he and his wife have brought forth. One has killed the other. But how's he feeling? Yeah, wretched. Like, can you... Can, it, I almost don't want to make... I don't want to encourage you to think of it, but I, kind of Ecclesiastes confronts you with it. The... Um, it generalizes the experience of Adam and Eve, of course, Adam's uh, unspeakable pain over one of his beloved sons taking the life of the other. And it says, end of, end of, just flip back, keep your finger in Genesis 4. Keep, end of verse 2, everything is able. Can you see what it's saying? Like, everything has within it this potential to just tear your heart apart. And I, you know, I don't know how, I think it, it may be that in our day and age we are sufficiently uh, secluded from or protected from the reality of death that we we, this comes as more of a shock to us than it might have done in other generations. If, 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 I, if we were talking in the Middle Ages or in um, the 5th century or something, uh, uh, all of you who were still alive um, would have almost certainly seen siblings die before the age of 10. You'd have had grandparents living with you and your father if he was still alive, would have carried his father's body out of the house. No mortuary services to kind of take care of it. You know, you'd have, we'd have been closer to the reality of death, and we're so far from it. But if I say to you, everything is like that narrative of Abel and his father left wondering, what do I gain? Because actually, all, what I feel is just loss. Um, and the loss of your child as well. I, it's quite hard to think. I, um, I, I, I'll tell you this story, and um, the, the reason I, I want to tell you this story is because it is so heart-wrenching. Uh, I had a friend who um, I've mentioned before to some of you, I, the first post I ever had at a church was as a pastoral intern, and they were in... The, the year I started, there were six of us, me included. And then over the years, more young men and some young women also joined. And there was one uh, guy who was married. Um, his, his oldest son, um, in his teenage years, uh, developed um, an illness for which he was prescribed some medication. Nobody told them that the medication had the side effect of inducing suicidal thoughts.
Uh, and everything is like, because if you've, if you've done, if that's happened, it's like everything has that long, dark, silent shadow over it, you know? And so <laughs> here's us last week, you know, um, we've been looking at the big picture of Ecclesiastes, and one of the things that we go away with is, look, so I can't remember who, it was um, Mr. Loki and I were going to both go home and have a, have a, a small whiskey at about nine o'clock together, though separated by a few miles. You know, maybe, maybe you joined us, because, I don't know, we've got a few nods over here, I have a glass of wine or something, because um, life is just this wonderful gift. And, and, not but, not but, and, everything is like able. Uh, I know, talking to a room full of people, um, some of you will have known... Um, grief that is like that. It won't be the same circumstances, but it would have felt like that. And um, see, if we're confronted with it here, um, maybe, just maybe, we might be in a better position to help one another through it if, God forbid, we should experience it. And notice I say, help one another through it, because, remember, kahal, yeah, assembly. Um, that's not an experience you want to go through alone. Um, so, I mean, verse 4, <laughs> can you see how it's, it's got the same theme? It doesn't say a generation comes and a generation goes. <laughs> Can you see? It says a generation goes. <laughs> and then a generation comes. It's backwards. Yeah, of course it is. Backwards. Death has this kind of um, emotional priority um, as, as the text presents it. So, let me pause for a second um, and let <laughs> recover my composure and let you recover yours. Um, any, any comments or thoughts about that? I've, I've talked a fair bit and I don't want to talk the whole time, so I want to stop and at some point we'll um, bounce back and forth a little bit. Any, any comments or thoughts so far? Hmm. I was thinking that Adam lost Abel and he lost Cain. Yeah. 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 Almost anything. <laughs> almost anything is better than one of your sons killing the other. You know, just. Um, and you're right. Yeah. He, um, Adam lost, and Eve lost Cain as well. Um, you you remarked on a point that emerges later in the text of Genesis four. Um, the Lord said in verse 10, what have you done? The voice of your brother's, your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. And then it's later, verse 12, um, you will be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Um, there are 
There are three geographic zones in Genesis 3 and 4. There's the garden, and then there's the land, Adamah, from which he'd been, Adam had been taken. Adam, Adamah is the land. Adam is the man. So he, uh, James Jordan, um, Pastor James Jordan, who's been worshipping with us here at All Saints, um, calls Adam, says his name is like dirtbag, because <laughs> he, he, he comes from the Adamah. Adam comes from the ground. Well, Cain is sent to the next zone outwards, the earth. The Hebrew word is Eretz. So garden, land, earth. Remember that, because not in Ecclesiastes, but we will come back to it when we talk about um, the geography of the temple and the the, um, sacrificial system and so on. Garden, land, earth. Okay. Um, Yeah, so um, Adam and Eve lose Cain. And Cain is throughout Scripture a negative example. Um, First John, do not be like Cain. Who murdered his brother? Um, he's, he's not a, a repentant man, as far as we can see. Um, and then your, blood, your brother's blood is crying out from the ground. So, what does it cry? Everything is able. You can, you can see the curse, the fruits of the curse on Adam's work and life being written in Ecclesiastes, in the, in the phrase that's the summary of the meaning of, book, of the book, everything is able. So another way of, of thinking about the meaning of Ecclesiastes, and again, I, I hinted at this, perhaps talked about it briefly last week, it's, it's a picture of what life is like under the curse, post-fall. Um, here's this created wonderful, glorious world, which has been plunged into ruin, and Ecclesiastes wrestles with the reality that everything is good and wonderful, and it's been ruined. Remember the bit in the middle, when we, where you've got Kohelet three times at the beginning, Kohelet three times at the end, and then Kohelet once in the middle, in chapter 7, um, and it says, God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. So it's creation and fall is at the heart of the book. So the heaviness is the fruit of the curse on this glorious world. And everything is like that. You see all these intertwined, tangled themes. And it is, um, I find, to be honest, I find it emotionally completely exhausting. And, and I think that's kind of part of the experience of reading. Um, so Uriah, you've got your hand up. Is that you or is it somebody online? Online, Okay. Could it be a, a nudge in the direction of resurrection? Who's, who asked that question? Nan. Nan. Oh, we miss you, Nan. Come, come back. <laughs> Where are you tonight? Um, why, why would a generation goes and a generation comes be a nudge in the direction of resurrection? Kyle raised his eyebrows then. It's a very dangerous thing to do because it looks like you have an idea and I might point at you. Okay, it sounds, sounds heretical. Okay. Yeah, don't say if it sounds heretical yeah. to you. We, we, we're used to saying comes and goes, but it says goes and comes. So why is that? Why does Nan think that might be like resurrection? Go on, Fraser. This is like God granting life after death. Right. Abel gets murdered by Cain, and then God graciously grants 
Adam and Eve a new son. Right, right. So it's life after death. You, you have to die in order to rise. Which is, a, of, of, course, of course you do. So you have to go through the pain of hevel in order to experience the joy of life. You have to go in order to come. You have to die in order to rise. So I'm, I'm absolutely sure that's one reason why the, um, the order, if you like, is that way around. It's definitely not accidental. The, the, the verbs are interesting. Um, the, um, in fact, I, I spent ages trying to figure out. I, I was, I basically, I, I translated the whole thing, well, for a few verses. Because the verb that's translated go in verse 4, generation goes, is actually the verb halaks to walk. And um, if you, if I, I'll, I'll, I'll read my kind of really, really shoddy wooden translation and count the number of times you get halak or to go. Ready? A generation goes and a generation comes and the earth forever stands. It rises, the sun, and it comes, the sun, and towards its standing place, panting, rising, there it is, going to the south and turning about to the north, turning about and turning about, goes the wind, and upon its turning about returns the wind. All the streams go, that's four, right, to the sea, but the sea is not full, and to the standing place where the streams go, there they return to go. How many goes? Six. Six. Why? I, I don't know if this is far-fetched, but the sixth commandment is thou shalt not murder. I, oh, <laughs> what in the world? Just my notes. I'm like, kind of... <laughs> I've never thought of that. Why have I never thought of that? Because six, I, everyone thinks what my poor wife immediately thought of, which is six is not seven. Six is what? Day, day, days of creation... So you get to the end of six days of creation and you need a, what? A rest. But you don't get a rest because you've only got six. So six is the restless number, the incomplete number. And, you'll, and how many, what's the verb that is repeated six times? It's the verb halak, to, to go or to walk. So, okay, everybody, a little experiment, go and walk for six days. Now you're going to feel, you don't need to do the experiment, you'll be totally exhausted. What do you want to do? You want to have a rest, there's no rest. And all these different things are depicted as trudging around the earth, the sun and the generations and the streams are all just kind of trudging and they get and they're completely exhausted. But then somebody says the sixth commandment is the commandment not to murder. Pastor Neil. I'm so glad you're here. It, I mean, I'm, I don't know, you are as well, because we re- read the same books, likely convinced that um, the, the ordering of the commandments is very significant, the arrangement is significant. Um, clearly, the, I mean, you've got two groups of five, um, and the first one of the second group has a kind of priority. You know, taking away life 
you, know, that you don't get a sin against a person that's much worse than that. Should we see something in the six days, the sixth commandment? I'm asking you, senior pastor Neil. <laughs> I'm pulling. I'm I'm pulling your rank, right? <laughs> I th- I th- you think so? Yeah. Also, sixth day of creation. Yeah. Were created, so yeah. The all over the place. So the sixth day was the day. Man, I'm so thick. Why didn't I see this? How old are you again, Sarah? Sort of twelve. Yeah. <laughs> Out of the lips of children. You're not even a teenager. What are you? Um, so so goodness gracious. Um, so, yeah, on the sixth day, people were created. And so the sixth commandment is the commandment not to take away the life of those people. Um, uh, yeah, thank you. Um, Anne, Sarah's big sister. Yikes, everyone hold tight, just a second. <laughs> I have not a question on that level. How many verses was that? Uh, that was verses four down to seven. And I'm sorry that it was so clunky, it's... My, my ropey Hebrew. Um, so, can you see what's happening here? Remember, what, one of the things we did last week, I read you a Shakespeare sonnet. I almost never do that for anybody, but for my wife, and I, that only rarely. And, and one of the reasons was, sorry, Nicole, embarrassing you here, but one of the reasons was to highlight the way that we should read imagery. You don't try and reduce imagery down to its irreducible core and say, this image means, and then some abstraction. What you do is you feed on the image, and you let the image push you in lots of different directions at once. Yeah? Stick with the concrete. Uh, and actually, it's a very fruitful way to, to read the scriptures and to do theology. So that's an example. I'm, I'm tempted to say, um, anybody got any other questions? But I almost don't dare. Um, uh, but, yeah, any, we're going to go on and look at the next little important phrase in a second. But any other comments on that? Anything, from, anything else from Nan? <laughs> Nothing? Oh, yeah, you've got a hand up. Yeah, uh, Abel, the re- um, Cain, the restless wanderer. I haven't got my Hebrew with me. Have you got a Hebrew Bible? Can you check the, the verb, the... the um, probably participle, wanderer, in, in um, Genesis 4, um, 14. I shall be a fugitive and a wanderer on the earth. Is it holake or something? Beg your pardon? Vagabond. That might be a translation of fugitive. Sorry, by the way, if you're waiting for us to proceed with the Bible study, I'm just too interested in what the... <laughs> Nua, so okay, They're right. So it doesn't pick up the the verbal connection to halak walking, but it's certainly the conceptual idea is there. Yeah, a fugitive and a wanderer. Vagabond is picking up the idea that he'll be a, that he's an outlaw. It's more kind of interpretive um, translation. All right, should we, should we go on? There's a, there's an important phrase um, in verse three. Who was I kidding that we were going to get to the end of chapter 1, by the way? Um, Verse 3. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils? Where? Yeah. Under the sun. Okay, so remember what we did with 
Kohelet and what we did with Hevel. And we did that because they're important words in the book. Hevel appears a lot and Kohelet is the author's name. Well, this little phrase, under the sun, is a really important one as well. It appears lots of times. So, what, are we gonna, what am I going to ask you? So, yeah, where else have you seen this? Remember, what we don't want to do is turn under the sun into an abstraction um, during our earthly days. Phew. I mean, it might have that resonance, but let your mind feed on what the sun does. What's the sun for? Where, you, where do you see this elsewhere in Scripture? And see where it takes you, because it, it doesn't say during your earthly days or before your death. It says under the sun. So let's take this image, this concrete image. What does it make you think of? I'm going to hold on to my lectern, because goodness knows where this is going. Under the sun. Farming. Farming. Go on. Fishing. Fishing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, this is just fanciful, right? But, but hold on, farming. Um, uh, why, why do you think farming? Plants need the sun. So if you're a farmer, you're out in the sun a lot. Can you think of any farmers that we've just been talking about? Cain. Abel, well, he's dead. Anybody else? Right? So, yeah, so the, if, if you're farming, that's part of the heritage that you'll pass on, and that's actually a theme that's picked up in Ecclesiastes. Um, Adam, just think about Adam for a second. Um, anybody want to tell me what Adam's job was exactly? What did he do, yeah? He was supposed to uh, take dominion over the earth. He was supposed to tend to it until it. Right. And you can tell he was supposed to tend the ground... Because of what God said to him in Genesis 3. Do you remember? I think I mentioned this last Sunday. Yeah, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Why will you eat bread by the sweat of your face? Why do you sweat? Right, because you're working hard to get the thistles and thorns out. Under the sun. If, have you ever done, like, yard work in Texas, anybody? <laughs> like, in England, it's not such a problem, genuinely. In Alaska, it's not such a big deal. But here's the, the first thing that is going to occur to a farmer if you say you're going to be working under the sun is like, oh, man. Redneck. Yeah, redneck. <laughs> Bring a sun hat. Because by the sweat of your face, you will eat your bread. So under the sun is a way, again, of pointing to a particular aspect of the the curse on human work, the experience of pain, but it's, 
It's connected with sweat. By the way, and this is an interesting little thought. Do you know the word sweat appears three times in the Bible? Do you know, what, do you know where? Can, can you, anybody? The first one is in Genesis 3. That's, that's the easiest one. Sweat like drops of blood. That's the second easiest, yeah? Yeah, when Jesus is on the cross, his sweat, just before the cross, um, um, not after the resurrection, close though. Um, so uh, in Luke 21, I've got a reference. Yeah, Luke, no, Luke 22, um, sweat like drops of blood falling on the ground. And the other one is, this is much more difficult. What do priests wear? Turbans? Yeah. What, what, what fabric? Linen. Why? Breathable. Because Ezekiel 44, they shall not bind themselves with anything that causes sweat. Right. Now, again, this, now this is Thomas Rentz, my, the, the Old Testament professor I mentioned earlier. There's a reason for it, you see. He said, you know, you can tell the story of the whole of the scriptures using those three biblical texts. We're all like, Thomas, <laughs> really? He said, yeah, of course you can, because um, the, the sin that was brought into the world by Adam and Eve caused, brought a curse on the world, which was manifested in human sweat. So when you see sweat, you're seeing the pain of work, whether it's work in the fields or, let me tell you, childbirth, because curse on Eve. Which is why, secondly, the priest in the sanctuary mustn't bind himself with anything that causes sweat because you don't want the manifestation of the curse to be in the sanctuary. That will be bad. This is holy ground, pure ground. So take the sign of the curse away. And then, so Jesus, because you don't want sweat to fall on the ground because that means that the person who's sweating is under the curse. So Jesus' sweat was like, drops of blood falling on the ground because why well he was under the his bloodshed was a manifestation of the adamic curse on creation pastor neil and then um and yeah sorry and go ahead and then pastor neil but work is good yes so so keep going with that but work is good because Genesis 1. So what's Ecclesiastes all about then? Is work good or bad? Yes. yes. <laughs> so, you, so you're all getting the hang of this now. Your mum got it first, actually, about two months ago. And now you're... So work is this tremendous gift. Genesis 1. And it's shattered and ruined. And it's good. And, and we're living in this bizarre tension between um, by faith united with the risen Lord Jesus Christ who's overcome the curse but by sight living in our physical bodies and we're awaiting the resurrection of our bodies the redemption of our bodies Romans 8 calls it our bodies have not yet been redeemed which is why we still die and so we're there is you know the, the mistake of Platonism Lots of mistakes of Platonism. But one of the mistakes of Platonism, to think of the body as a bad thing and salvation being escape from the body, that's a, that's a mistaken doctrine. Because last time we had a the previous Bible study series talking about resurrection, 
Resurrection is not escape from the body, it's the renewal and transformation of our bodies. But Plato's not, I don't want to say it like this, no, I will say it like this, Plato's not altogether wrong that bodily life is, what should we say, um, scarred by the effects of sin. Anybody ever had backache <laughs> recently? <laughs> Can you see what, what, how, how our experience of embodied life is both that glorious blessing of Genesis 1 and the pain of Genesis 3? And I don't know, I think one of the functions of Ecclesiastes in God's providence is for us to have a slightly more realistic expectation of, of our lives. Pastor Neil, you had your hand up. And, um, That's fascinating. Let me just try and capture that for the sake of the Zoomers, because that's I've never seen that before. The, um, so 2 Samuel 12, the text you're referring to, um, Nathan confronting David after his sin with Bathsheba and, and Uriah the Hittite. Um, and twice, actually, now you mention it, um, uh, it is said that, that the phrase under the sun or in the sight of the sun or before the sun is used to describe David's sin and the consequences of that. And so for Solomon to write under the sun would evoke that memory. You think how that works. So he would be, he'd be thinking the phrase under the sun Right. Yes. That I was definitely thinking that I'd, I'd thought of that because of Genesis one. He made the two lights, the sun and the moon, the greater light and lesser light, to rule. But I'd, I'd not seen the the development of that into this. It's a, it's a really macabre memory for Solomon, isn't it? A bitter memory of his father's wickedness. Um. So the phrase under the sun then. In Ecclesiastes, um, obviously it means then within, it has to do with our earthly lives under the sun, but it, 
our earthly lives, which we live, um, experiencing the effects of our own sin and the sins of people close to us. Thank you, Pastor Neil. Um, Don't miss the the ruling point as well. Um, Genesis 1 is a more more fundamental and not fundamental, more more easy point to see, right? Um, The God made the Genesis 1 um, 16. Just flip back with me. God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night. And the star. So the greater light is clearly the sun, and and actually, what it's, it says, he he um, uh, he caused them or, or or made it so that they would rule. It's a it's a slightly different construction than just that he made them. He made them to do something. He appointed them to a task. Seems to be the sense of it. So the sun is given this job of ruling the day. So it's like the sun is in charge, and then Solomon or whichever the king is is supposed to be an image of that heavenly light, which is why you're going to have descendants as many as the stars of the sky, Abraham, because you're going to be rulers, and rulers will be among you. And, uh, and yet that rule is scarred by that horrific memory of the great King David's wickedness. Do you want to jump in with anything else, Pastor Neil? Yes. No, that's very good. Very helpful. Thank you very much indeed for for sharing that. So, as we look through the rest of this, we should probably try and speed up. I'm looking at my 20 minutes, loads of time. Um, As we look through the rest of this chapter, um, I'll read a few more verses and um, tell me the sense that this poetry is trying to convey? What sort of uh, sentiments is it, is it seeking to convey? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes round to the north, round and round goes the wind, and on its circuit the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, There they flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear with hearing. What does that intended, what feelings or, um, what's the word, what sentiments is it intended to um, inculcate or convey? Frustration, you think? Why? Sorry, go on. Weariness. Because it says, doesn't it? Um, verse 8, all things are full of weariness. Remember the, the repetition of halak, to walk. Everything's just plodding on. Sun going round and three streams going down and the wind going this way and that. And nobody gets a chance, nobody gets a break, nobody gets a rest. Everything's weary. Yeah, Samuel. An acknowledgement that Life is, life is going on. Life is going on. 
life is going on. Despite all the weirdness, despite all the futility, yeah. And yeah. It's, it's just going on. And, the, and you can put tremendous amount of effort into all kinds of details and your work and your home and your life and everything, and, and the sun doesn't seem to care. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's just like, over the top. And down it goes. Yeah. Yeah, interesting. You strive for more and it's never enough. There is a note of that, I think, here. There is. Um, we, we, we don't want to... Um, we don't want to make that the only theme. I know that's not what you're saying, but I think there is some of that. Um, end of verse 8. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. There's no, there is... Uh, this is one of these weird moments where um, even modern psychology is catching up with the Bible. I've mentioned lots of, a number of instances of this in recent months. Well, psychologists have realized in recent years how motivation works. Um, motivation and, and a sense of fulfillment and worth does not come primarily from having achieved a certain position. It comes from the striving towards that position. Are you with me? So here's an illustration. Those of you who, who are employed in a job that you love or you're in a relationship that you're really excited about, um, presumably you're happy with it now, right? But the day you got the job offer, can you remember? Like, can you remember how you felt? It's like, I don't know how you felt, but... Or, or the day that he proposed or something. It's like, I mean, you, presumably you're still reasonably happy with the situation, but, but the, <laughs> here's hoping, right? Um, but the day that he said, you may, or whatever he said, I don't know. Can you, you know there is that kind of, the excitement of that accomplishment, making that, and, and that, that actually fades, you, you, I remember Nicole and me. I, I, <laughs> I'm not. Um, no, I won't tell the story. I spread out. I don't know. I've got myself into trouble. What should I do now? <laughs> Think of a different illustration. I know. Back to somebody's job. Yeah, you, 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 you're really excited about the prospect of a new job, yeah, or a new school, or a, a new venture that you're going on. When you get into it, yeah, it starts to become not full of weariness. You don't hate it, if it because you might still be a bit of Genesis 1, not just all Genesis 3. But the shine comes off. Can you see? Now, psychologists have, have been expressing the same thing in recent decades, just in different terms. That, um, that human self-fulfillment, and it's all expressed in secular terms in a way which is unhelpful, arises from meaningful striving towards an attainable goal. And actually, just like everything in every discipline, everything that's true and good about it is actually biblical. It's just expressed more profoundly and in different ways in Scripture. Um, So there is this... And here what's expressed is the, the negative aspect of... yeah. All things are full of weariness. The eye is not full. 
you, you think that when I get that job, it will just be, everything will be perfect. And you get there and it's like, mm, it's, it's good. But now really what I'd like is promotion. <laughs> you know? I've got my pi- private pilot's license. Yes. I can fly this little one-engine plane. Yes. At 120 knots. I'd love to fly one of those ones that shoots past at Mach 2. That would be awesome. You know what I mean? You, the eye is not satisfied with seeing. The ear is not full of hearing. Solomon is expressing in, in much more kind of profound and um, symbolic terms those same thoughts. Uh, Mr. Claghorn and then and here. Yes. I've never really, until maybe the last decade, understood how someone could be okay with death. Like, how are you ready to die? And, and over the last 10 years, nothing's new under the sun. I mean, I've seen all of it before. You know, I, I can see that when you get to a, a very old age, it's like, I'm ready to go because, yeah. you know, there's no more pursuits that are really you know, driving me anymore. I've seen it all. Yes. Yes, that's interesting. The, the idea that it's, there's so much there, the, the wisdom of age, like that. Um, I wonder as well about, I mean, that, that is a particular perspective on death, which I suspect is, is one of the, the conflicting perspectives that we ought to be seeking to cultivate. So we don't ever want to get to the point of thinking death is okay. But at the same time, I think you're right. There, it's back to the um, an old man and full of years. So there is such a thing as a as a the right time f- to go. Um, Pastor Neil. Could there also be something about the contentment hmm. with our own limitations? Oh yeah. We're not meant to grasp everything and be like trying to make a water bottle. We can't do that. Uh, the rivers keep running into the sea. How come the seas aren't full? Yes. Um, I think that's, that's so profoundly true. The, the book I mentioned earlier by um, David Gibson, he has a phrase where he says, um, if we're not careful, quote, we spend our lives trying to escape the constraints of our created condition. And actually there's this, the wisdom of age, Mr. Claghorn, in recognizing, yeah, the, the sea 
never gets filled up. All those rivers pouring into it. And if the rivers can't fill up the sea, then the things that I'm seeing and hearing will never be able to fill me up completely. I should get to the point of just, yeah, like you said, contentment. Contentment with creatureliness. Yeah. Um, And do you want to go ahead? Well, so the ant in Proverbs 6. I don't know that you're making fake connections, but I don't think, I think it's a, it's a very fruitful connection. Without having any chief officer or ruler, she prepares her bread in the summer and gathers her food at harvest. So what's going to happen next year? Do it again. I mean, if ants live that long, I don't know how long ants live. Let's imagine ants lived for a few years. You know, ants just, there they go. They go scurrying around, pick up breadcrumbs and carry them back to the nest and eat them and then go to sleep and wake up and do the same thing again. What, or whatever they do, you know? Like those leaf cutter ants. Have you seen them? And they're like marching along with leaves. It's like, what are you doing that for? I don't know. It's just what we do. So they're like the rivers that just never fill the, the seas up. And I think there's um, what you're seeing. And, and, and then what Proverbs 6 says is, so actually you ought to be like that. But don't think that you're going to fill yourself up with things any more than the sea can fill itself up with things. Our created limitations, David Gibson, again. Um, Pastor Neil. We are expected to sleep, though. We are given a daily reminder of... I think that's, that's very wise, yeah. Um, and I think what we'll do um, next week when we, when we come back, uh, it won't be next week probably, will it? Because presbytery... It's up to you. Because, oh, yeah, we'll come back on Wednesday. Yeah, come back on Wednesday. Come to that in a second. Next time, maybe two weeks, um, we'll go through huh, all the way through chapter two as well as the end of chapter one. And Yeah, I know, we will. Don't worry. We'll, we'll get there. The readings are going to get longer, and we're going to do some less and less of them. And by the end, we'll be reading six chapters and doing... Anyway, um, but that actually gets really specific into the pursuit of different things like that. Um, How will we yes, know sir? Oh, don't worry. I'll, I'll decide, email everybody, and I might even decide at the end of this evening. So I'll, I won't, I'll let you know. Don't worry. I need to just check the location and um, distances. Um, 
one other thing I wanted to draw attention to. Um, this is a philosophical point, really, but it's, it's not a kind of highfalutin philosophical point. Um, uh, it's about the progress of history. Now, quick show of hands. How many of you have ever read those kind of late 20th century books by people like Francis Schaeffer about Christian worldview and so on? You've read things like that? Now, Francis Schaeffer, awesome guy, fantastic. Um, have you ever read books that contrasted the Christian view of history with other views of history, like Buddhist views, where the contrast is um, Buddhist, for example, you say history is cyclical, reincarnation, going round and round and round forever, whereas the Christian view of history is linear, creation, fall, history, Christ, resurrection, judgment, etc. Yeah? Have you, have you seen those two contrasted? Hmm. I'm, I'm not altogether sure I agree that history is simply linear. Because Pastor Neil, who's now smiling, remember what you, literally you just said, we have these cycles, day, week, year, um, lifetimes, generations, um, larger structures within history, the rise and fall of nations. I don't think it's entirely wrong to say that history is circular. I just think I think there's a better way. I've, I've got a better image than either linear or circular, but we've got a couple of hands up here. So let me take these. Go on, Sam. And, you know, it's easy to say that history can be cyclical because when you look back at it, you notice that so many patterns of history are on repeats. Right. So no, many... matter, no matter how far we advance or how far we decline, right. the same patterns of history repeat themselves. Right. The same patterns of history repeat themselves. They repeat themselves typologically in biblical history. Um, I, I think a better picture for understanding history is not just linear or just circular, but spiral. So it's linear in the sense that it's going in a particular direction. Think of a corkscrew, yeah? but a very long corkscrew. It's that way, but it's also, if you look at it end on, it's going round and round and round and round like this. But it's more complicated than just a corkscrew because you've got weekly cycles like this and you've got daily cycles like this. And then you've got yearly cycles like this. Then you've got cycles of lifetimes and generations. And then you've got cycles of eons or, or eras and rise and fall of nations over multiple centuries. So what, what is history like? So, oh, okay. So if this is the flow of time, it's like little daily things and weekly things and all that structure is moving around in years and then the whole of that structure is moving around in generations and in... Sorry, I'm going to come back. Hello, everybody. Um, uh, it's heading in that direction, but with these cycles within it. And I think what actually happened in the, the um, uh, 70s, 80s, 90s, um, you've got... Uh, New Age philosophy is very popular, um, and you've got Christians reacting to that. So history is not circular, 
it is linear. It's like, well, hold on a second. It is not circular. But a, a, a spiral is actually how it feels like. Now, if you're just thinking about this year and last year, um, you might not notice the progress of the cycle. You might just see the days and weeks and months and years round and round in circles. And th- that's actually right. They're there. They are there. And if you're not ready for that, you don't know how to live within it. The glory of it is, and Pastor Neil highlighted this, that they're put there for our good. Like the, the seasons and the week, because you don't want to walk halak six days and then not have shalom for the seventh day, do you? That cycle is put there. All of the cycles are put there to help us navigate the progress of history. And when you get to the end of the matter, all has been heard, end of chapter 12, just fear God and keep his commandments and everything's going to be all right. Um, Uriah has his hand up, which means he's either stretching his shoulder. Is that what it is? No, it's you got one question. So, okay, go ahead. Two comments. Yes, yes. Yeah, the, the, the movement of the heavenly bodies is actually, I mean, from our perspective, is a consequence of precisely those cycles, isn't it? There is a kind of repeated, a phenomenologically circular movement of sun, moon, stars, and so on. Um, yeah, certainly cyclical. Um, yeah, go ahead. Go around just in a circle, yes. And so I, I'm just wondering what, I mean, I guess the obvious answer is he's trying to make a point about vanity event, vapor, mm-hmm. um, it freaks, something freaks, but I just wonder if there's something more to it, what he's driving at, this picture, this cynical picture. 
Yes. Um, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure. I'm, I, I'm sure there is more to it, but I'm not sure what it would be. I think the contentment point that somebody made earlier is very likely significant. Um, and especially the, the interaction of that with increasing old age. Um, I'm looking at Mr. Clackwon because you mentioned it, not because you are. Right? <laughs> um, uh, that, that actually, that, that brings a certain perspective on novelty. Um, but, but maybe, so w- I'll leave you with this thought about the Buddhist and other pagan cyclical philosophies. All sin is a distortion of something good. All evil is a twisting of goodness. So all pagan philosophies are going to be a distortion of truth. Correct? So what has Buddhism done in its view of history? It has taken a Christian view of history and twisted it. Removed the linearity and the progression and is left just with a cyclical character. And then, of course, the cyclical character is itself distorted further in terms of what's the content of the cycle. Um, it's just the cycle of life and then reincarnation and so on. But um, what actually, the, the truth is, yeah, it's life, life is more complex than that. Um, and you may be able to find other philosophies of life, like materialism, which are just pure linearity, without... Um, the recognition of the significance of, the ontological significance of, say, a seven-day week. Like, for, for materialists, a seven-day week is just a, you know, it doesn't have anything to do with how we're made, whereas for a Christian, it has everything to do with how we're made. You try an eight-day week or a five-day week, it isn't going to work. So, okay, we should stop, because it's three minutes past, quarter past, and that's when we normally stop, when things are going well. So um, uh, thank you all for coming. Thank you for your attention. I'm, uh, I'm just going to check now my um, calendar, if you'll pardon me, and work out um, when exactly uh, I'll be back next week. Uh, we have presbytery meetings, Pastor Neil, um, on Wednesday, certainly up till lunchtime and possibly afterwards. I've got them down till 4 p.m., um, on Wednesday, I've got them. And so I have a sneaking suspicion. Here's what we'll say. Um, we won't have Bible study next week unless you hear from me otherwise, and I'll let you know soon. Is, is everybody here on the uh, Everyone at All Saints email list? Do you all get those emails? You don't? Okay, if you don't, please send me an email um, in the next day or so, and I'll let you know personally, because I'd hate for you guys to... Um, to come here if it isn't happening or to not come here if it is. And same for those of you at home. So anybody listening, um, if you're not on the everyone list, um, then just let me know by email, stevejeffrey1703 at gmail.com, and we'll, um, we'll make sure that everybody is kept up to date. Pastor Neil. Right. Okay, thank you. I will check that and I'll, make, I'll confirm with everybody. And hopefully we will be able to do it on Wednesday. So I'll let you know in the next um, day or so. Thanks everybody for your patience. And uh, we'll pray and then I'll let you all go. Merciful Father, thank you again for this remarkable book. Uh, the book of Ecclesiastes. Uh, nourish and teach and help us, we pray. 
to wrestle with it as we seek to wrestle through our lives uh, in what we pray will be increasing faithfulness and maturity. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.